God has created us to be while loving people well. How do we take back our true identity? Good morning. Good to see you this morning. My name is Paul, in case we haven't met. And we're in week two of a four-week sermon series titled Imago Dei. Those two words are Latin, and it means image of God. And if you missed last week, we talked about the creation, Genesis 1, and how as human beings, he created us to bear his image. We as humans are made in the image of God, in the likeness of God. We talked about how that means we have dignity, a duty, and a devotion to him. So we discussed last week, and, and I have to wonder, this past week, did you look at other people and see them as image bearers? Did you do that? We talked about last week as far as the creation. Today we're going to talk about the fall. And next week we'll talk about redemption, and then week four in a couple weeks we'll talk about restoration. That's really the biblical framework and the biblical worldview that we're working through regarding Imago Dei. Like I said, I wonder if this past week, if you, uh, if you were like that angled mirror we talked about last week, you may remember that, but you know that angled mirror where you kind of reflected God's glory to the world around you, to the creation around you? Did you do that this past week? Could people tell who your king that you follow is? And I'm sorry if I'm brightening some of you guys. It's kind of fun. <laughs> but like I said earlier, did you look around at all the people and see them as image bearers? Made in the image of God. That can be tough to do sometimes, can it? Did you stop and have to pause and say three times, image bearer, image bearer, image bearer? Difficult, it is. And you have to wonder why. Why is it so difficult to see people made in the image of God as image bearers? Well, it's because of the fall. It's what we're going to talk about today. You see... What happened at the fall is that our image was shattered. That was fun. <laughs> and I, I don't believe in bad luck, by the way. But speaking of shattered, I want to tell you a quick story about a time when I was just a little boy. And it definitely deals with shattered. I, uh, I had a friend, his name was Jacob. I guess you could kind of call him more of a frenemy. Because we loved to compete, we fought all the time, and we got in lots of trouble. I, I, I'm told, at least I'm told, that we were the terror of the nursery. My dad's just shaking his head right now. And as we got older, we, we grew to be kind of terrors of the Sunday school. Kind of in a way, you could say we were just terrors of the church. At least this is what I'm told. I mean, look at this picture of me when I was a little kid. How can that guy right there be a terror, right? Hey, I'm dressed to the nines. Mom, Dad, thanks for the bowl cut, by the way. But how could that guy be a tear? Well, we were. And I remember one time we were standing in line. It was in our Sunday school class. I don't remember the, the context exactly. We were coming or going. And well, Jacob started picking on me. He was behind me. He started pushing me a little bit, um, kind of messing with my hair. He started flicking my ear, and I finally had enough. So I turn around, and I'm going to give Jacob a haymaker. You know what I mean? And I go around. I'm winding up just to let him have it, punch him in the face, and he knows what I'm going to do. He anticipates my reaction. He ducks. I drill the kid right behind him, square in the eye. Didn't know the kid. First time at church, him and his family, they never came back. 
and thankfully he wasn't wearing his spectacles. He had his glasses in his hand, but as soon as I hit him in the eye, he dropped them. Of course, he wasn't expecting it. He was kind of staggering around a little bit, and he stepped on his glasses. I got in big trouble. Jacob got off scot-free, and the kid's glasses were shattered. 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 It's the world we live in, isn't it? I think everybody can agree that there's just something wrong with the world today. May not agree on what that thing is, but I think everybody knows that things are not as they should be. And we're going to talk about where things went wrong. So if you would, open your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and follow along if you would as I read verses 1 through 7. We'll kind of do a high-level overview of chapter 3, but we'll kind of focus initially on these first seven verses. So follow along, if you would, please. And now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. <laughs> you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Let's pray. Father, we come here today, we recognize that something's shattered in the world. And maybe we're dealing with different things in our own lives. So Holy Spirit, I just ask for a protection over this place. Would you eliminate those distractions? We come here desperately needing to hear a word from you. Speak to us through your word today. And thanks, thanks, thank you, Jesus. It doesn't end with Genesis 3. You're the king. We love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Before we jump into these verses, look in your Bibles. At the end of chapter 2, there's two words that end Verse 25, <laughs> no shame, no shame. The end of 2, verse 25, that'll be the last time we can say that about the world we live in, no shame. Because we get to chapter 3 and shame enters the picture. And the scene in chapter 3, in verse 1, begins with a serpent who is described as being crafty. Also meaning clever, cunning, shrewd. And this snake talks. And at this point, it's easy to be like, what's up with that? A talking snake? I mean, there's all kinds of questions that kind of swirl around, like, right? Like, uh, perhaps, why wasn't Eve scared? I mean, when, if I were to hear a, a snake begin to talk, I'd be running the other way, you know what I mean? Or, <laughs> when he talked, did he have a lot of hiss sounds? Did he crawl? Was he upright? Is he standing somehow? Um, did the other animals in the garden, did they talk before the fall? 
Is the serpent meant to be taken literally? And on and on and on and on we can go with the questions. But in reality, we just don't know. We don't know. The answers aren't all there. And really, at some level, it's unprofitable for us to try to sit and guess all day long because we just don't know. Don't know. But I will say this. If you'd like to continue a deeper discussion around this talking snake, the serpent, in chapter 3, verse 1 here of Genesis, you ought to come to our Old Testament survey class that's taking place Thursdays at 6 o'clock from 6 to 7.30. They'll be talking about this, I believe, in the next week or two. But the questions this morning that we really need to ask as we look at this passage are more around how would the original audience that Moses is writing to, the Israelites, how would they have understood this? And the other question is, what does this mean for us today? And because we don't have all the details, God hasn't given us that. When we look at this, I think the best way to approach this is at face value. Uh, We're talking about a literal snake here. And somehow our enemy supernaturally used this snake for his own devilish purposes. It's the best way to approach this. So what does that mean for us today? Should we run around killing as many snakes as we possibly can? No, of course that's not what it means. Although I will say, you see a rattlesnake, kill the thing. They're scary and they're bad and I don't like them. But that's not what it means. It would do us well to understand that this snake, this serpent, also represents sin, death, and the powers and forces of evil. And besides that, how we looked isn't real, really all that important. What's more important is what came out of his mouth. Because what came out of the serpent's mouth, he was spewing deadly poisonous venom when he asked this first question, the first four words when he said, did God really say? Did did God really say? You know what was interesting as I studied this over the last week or so? How How did God, you remember this from last weekend? How did God create the universe? Spoke it into existence. By a word, the first thing that's attacked is what? God's word. Did God really say? Clever. Cunning. It's not a frontal assault. It's more covert. Because he doesn't come out and just say, Oh, God didn't say that. Ignore what God said. No, did God really say? Did God really say? Notice he doesn't say anything else, not a direct attack. It's much subtler, manipulative, cunning. He's seducing instead of demanding. And then he twists what God actually did say because he says this, the serpent says this, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? There's a twist here. Oh, ever so subtle. But if we look back at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, we see that God told Adam, you can eat from any tree. You can eat from them all, save one. Do you see what he's doing here? Do you see what the enemy is doing? He's focusing on the negative, the prohibition, versus the generosity of God. His question is meant to sow seeds of doubt in Adam and Eve's mind, causing them to doubt the goodness of God He wants them to think that maybe God's holding something back from them, that maybe the Creator doesn't know what's best for His creation. Did God really say? And then we get to Eve's response. And we'll see in her response there in verse 3 that she kind of begins to have a shift in her thinking. And really we'll see this a little bit more, but a shift in her heart. They both do, because Adam's right there with her too. 
But notice in her response, she begins by saying, But God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Stop. If she just stopped there, things have been fine. Or, or maybe if she just said, you know what, let me go talk to God about this and see what he has to say. I bet the serpent would have slithered away at that point. But she doesn't talk to God. She doesn't stop there. She continues. And here is where we see things really begin to go sideways. At the end of verse 3, she makes two statements. And you must not touch it or you will die. There's an and statement and an or statement. And we need to focus on those two for a little bit. Because one adds to God's word and one takes away from it. Let me explain. First, the and statement. She says this. And you must not touch it. See if you can find God saying that in Genesis chapter 1, 2, or even the beginning of 3. You won't find it because he didn't say it. She's adding to God's word. You see, really what is happening here is this is the first act of legalism. Adding an additional law, a buffer, a set of rules to God's law. Really what this does, people do this in a a way to try to make God look stricter than he is. And sometimes people are trying to make themselves look better than they are, you know what I mean? The Pharisees were famous for this. There was over 600 laws that choked and killed the people during the time Jesus walked planet Earth. Legalism, a self-based righteousness. That's what we're talking about here. Talking about trying to earn your way to salvation, doing all the right things. Making it happen on your own. It's legalism. This is the first act of it here. Instead of salvation based on faith through the grace and mercy of God, they're trying to do it on their own. Why is it that we still deal with this today? Adding to God's word. Well, it's because it's kind of in our nature from our ancestors. And I think also we have this desire to be in control. Do it on our own. That's all born out of pride. That's the and statement. Then we get to the or statement. And this one's even a little bit more subtle. Check it out. Because Eve says this, or you will die. Or you will die. Are you, are you with me on this? She leaves out a word. It's the word certainly. When God told them not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he says, you will certainly die. Basically, what God's saying is there's going to be a death sentence if you disobey. If you eat the fruit, you're, you're gonna, the consequence will be death. When Eve leads out the, leaves out the word certainly, it's almost like she's making it more of a hypothetical statement. Maybe, we do, maybe we'll die. Maybe we won't. Perhaps in their mind they thought, Adam and Eve thought, we'll just continue to eat from the tree of the fruit of life and everything will be fine. Life will go on as it is and things will be fine. Do we ever fall into this trap taken away from God's word? Oh, yes. Did God really say that? I can do this. I think I know what's better for me than the creator. And I haven't gotten caught yet. Everything's fine. Just fine. That's when the serpent strikes. Look at, look at what the serpent says in verse 4. You will not certainly die. He adds the word certainly back in. Why? Because in a way he's agreeing with Eve. He's saying, you're right. You certainly will not die. 
You won't. Crafty, cunning, shrewd, manipulative, dangerous, deadly. Such is the bait of Satan. And he continues to lead him through the trap door, baiting him by saying this, for God knows. <laughs> All of a sudden, he's got the mind of God, and he's, a, he's the spokesman for God. You see this? For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Here is where Adam and Eve really begin to believe that God's holding back something from them. Like we discussed last week, as humans, we all have a God-sized hole. Every person does, whether they want to admit it or not. And the only thing that's going to fill that is the goodness and love of God. It's how we're made. And our enemy knows that as well. You see, the best kind of temptation that he uses is when it's disguised as something good. Go ahead, take a bite. Tastes good, looks good. Nothing will happen. Everything will be just fine. Just fine, give it a try. And you see, one of the ways, and it's no surprise based on this text, that our enemy is described is as the father of lies. He's a deceiver. And let's face it, we live in a world where there's so many competing voices, isn't there? This kind of reminded me of a couple letters that I've heard about a lot over the last six months to a year. The letters AI. Anybody heard this one? Come on now. Artificial intelligence, you know what I'm talking about. I'm kind of intrigued by it. I really am. I, I, I wonder what it's going to do to the cultural landscape. I'm not an expert by any means, but I was talking to somebody recently about AI and how AI, somehow they're using computer-generated voices to mimic, to, to imitate voices of somebody that you may know. Like a son, daughter, grandma, grandpa, father, mother. And they're using that to make phone calls to try to deceive people to give away personal information, credit card numbers, things like that. Sneaky, deceptive, crafty, cunning. And let's be honest, things seem to be getting stranger and stranger and weirder in the world we live, don't they? I'm not talking just about AI, and I'm not saying that in and of itself it's evil, but it can be used for all kinds of evil. So important that we understand that there are competing, masquerading voices, counterfeit voices, all saying really the same thing at the root. Did God really say? Did God really say? This is why we must be grounded in the Word of God. It is so, so vital. It's why we preach from it. It's why we encourage you to study His Word at least four days a week on your own. Oh, this is, this is so important to understand His voice and what He's teaching us. We encourage you to study His Word in the context of small groups with other people. It's important. And by the way, on that note, I just want to take a moment to celebrate because last week we had our group launch and we had over 60 new people join new rooted groups. That's seven new groups. And I'm like, thank you, Lord, for that. And I also made a challenge. I said, hey, uh, we sure could use some leaders. And guess what? We got one extra leader. Good job, Faithy. Once again, thank, thank you, Lord, for that. 
We've got to know what God's Word says. And you know what? These 66 books of the Bible, this is the breath of God. It's the very Word that He spoke creation into existence. Now we get to hold in our hands. And He breathed it into creation through His Spirit using over 40 different authors over a 1,500-year period of time, and God's Word fits together perfectly. Man can't make this up. No way, no way. It's the Word of God. It's the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God, and it's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. It's the pathway that we need to follow for our lives. And there's no ands or ors about it. There's no adding or subtracting to it. It's His Word. And it points to Jesus, the good shepherd, and the sheep need to know his voice. Are you spending time in the word of God? I think the world's going to get more and more deceiving. You better be. I need to be. We all need to be. Did God really say? Eve was deceived. She listened to the wrong voice. And that statement, that question, did God really say, kind of adds a fourth D to the whole situation. You may remember last week we talked about 3D glasses. We're made in the image of God. We have dignity, duty, devotion. Now all of a sudden that fourth D, did God really say, it shatters the image. It shatters the dignity, the duty, the devotion. And as humans, we are created to be in relationship. We're not created to be autonomous people. Contrary to what culture may say, our Western individualism. No, we're created to be with one another and with God. Did God really say shatters those relationships as well? That's what we're going to look at next. Each of those relationships, the up arrow that points to God is now shattered here at the fall. That inward arrow pointing to ourselves, shattered. The outward arrow pointing to other people, how we view others, shattered. And then the arrow pointing downward to creation, And our relationship with it has now been shattered. Shattered. If Genesis 3 is the fall chapter, well, verse 6 is the fall verse. Because here we see the most important relationship shattered. That upward arrow to God. Their devotion turns to disloyalty. Because they take matters into their own hand and they eat of the fruit. And that's the first blank in your worship guide. Devotion turns to disloyalty disloyalty. They disobey. They're disloyal. Now at some point, some people may be tempted to, at, at this point to say, well, you can place all the blame on Eve. It was the woman's fault. But this would be incorrect thinking. This would be wrong thinking. You see, who was created first? Adam. And you know what? God actually gave the command directly to Adam before Eve was even in the scene. Chapter 2, verse 17, he says to Adam directly, do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam got that command before Eve was even around. But he stands there and does nothing. They're in this together. They share responsibility. They're both at fault because the necessary good that they had was all around them. They had everything they needed, but they wanted something more. They wanted to be in control. And after them being disloyal, what's the first thing that they do? We see it in verse 8. We didn't read it, but this is what God's word says. They hid. They hid from God. They ran. They, They went and hid in the trees. Here's the irony of all this. Check this out. 
They wanted to become more like God. They missed that they were already made in the image of God. And as a result, they were now separated from God. That's what sin does. It separates us from God. It makes us want to run, hide in the trees. And ever since then, mankind has been trying to run from God, hiding in the trees. And yet, and yet, at the end of verse 9, we see God calling Adam. Adam, where are you? Eve, where are you? He knows where they're at. Oh, yeah. He knows where they're at, but you see by him calling them, he's calling them back to himself. Here's some attributes of our great God. He's full of mercy and grace because at this moment he could have just started over, wiped everything out, wiped humanity out, but he's full of mercy. And he calls them back to himself. Why? Because he's full of grace, mercy, and grace. When we rebel against God, when we sin, don't we have that same kind of initial reaction too? Oftentimes we want to run and hide hide in the trees as far away from God as we possibly can. Then when we're running away from him, we're looking for everything else to fill that void in our hearts and our lives that only his love and goodness can. You see, true freedom. I'm not talking about temporary freedom here. I'm talking about true freedom here and for eternity. It's only found when our full devotion is in God. That's where it's at. God provides all that is good, just like he did in the first two chapters of Genesis. It is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. Our job is to trust and obey him. Their first thought was to hide from God. and The very thing that they shouldn't do. And then the next thing they felt was shame. Was shame. Look at verse 7. It says, they noticed that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together to hide themselves. In their, attempt, in their attempt to be shrewd, they realized they were nude. And then their dignity turned to shame. That's the next blank line. Their dignity turned to shame. Innocence had been lost. That's what happens when we reject God trying to win our own personal freedom. We end up enslaved by chains of shame. I'll say that again. When we reject God, trying to win our own personal freedom, that rejection of God, we only end up enslaved by chains of shame. Shame had now entered into the world. No turning back from this point forward. Shattering our view of ourself. Shame. That arrow pointing back to us. And a lot of times it seems like we can go one of two ways with our view of ourselves. We can have too high a view of ourselves, like. <laughs> Yeah, I got everything. I'm in control. I'm good. Kind of over-dignify our way of looking at ourselves as an image bearer. Or we can go the other way. Maybe think, I'm unlovable because of what I've done. The things that have been done to me. Easy in that place to reject that we're image bearers made in the image of God. And all that we can see when we're there is the shame and the shattered pieces that it leaves. Remember that story about the kid that I start? You probably do. The kid that I punched. I never thought I'd be talking about punching somebody in the face this much from the pulpit, by the way. Um, so let me change that to hit. 
Sounds a little bit more sanitary. Remember that story about the kid that I, that I hit in the eye? Well, I saw him about a year later. And uh, I remember this feeling so poignantly. It was about a year later, and he ended up, I think, moving into our neighborhood, and I was on the bus with him. And uh, I walked on the bus, and there he was sitting. And I looked at him, and I instantly felt so bad for what I had done. And rightfully so. And then I saw him, his face, he looked at me, and I noticed there around his eye, there was markings. Something wasn't right. And I saw that a year later, and I felt so much shame. Because I thought, I did that. I did that, and then I did everything I possibly could to avoid any kind of contact with that young man. If I saw him coming, and and God's kept seeming to put him in my pathway. For years this went on. I'd see him coming down the hallway, I'd go the other way. I'd see him on the bus, I'd sit as far away as possible. He'd make eye contact or look my way, I'd instantly look the other way. And then I started blaming Jacob. Why'd you duck? And I started blaming, I, I, I even blamed the kid I hit, like, you should have saw it coming, dude, move out of the way. At some level, I was hiding from God, and I started to blame God. God, wh- why did you let this happen? Why didn't you heal his face? What's wrong? Why'd you let this happen? You see where shame goes? It goes to the blame game, doesn't it? And when shame goes to blame, It shatters our relationship with other people. That's the next blank line. Shame to blame. So what happened with Adam and Eve, really, in the garden. If you looked at chapter 3, you see that God asked Adam, he said, where are you? And they're hiding. And God says, "Did did you eat from the fruit that I told you not to? God knows the answer, but once again, he's calling, he's trying to draw Adam back to himself, a place of repentance. But instead of repentance, what's Adam do? He plays the victim. He plays the blame game. He says, well, God, it's the woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. At first glance, it may may seem like he's blaming the woman, right? And maybe he is at some level. But what Adam's doing is he's blaming God. God, it's the woman you gave me. God, I went to bed single and I woke up married. It's your fault. (laughs) So man blames God. The woman blames the serpent. As As though the serpent made her do anything. Yeah, he was crafty, clever, cunning, shrewd. But all he said were words. She had free will. They both did. This is our story too, isn't it? The shame goes to blame. The personal accountability goes out the window. It's the world we live in. We've inherited this too, haven't we? It seems to be in our nature. The shattered image of others then takes place. Man blames God. Woman blames man, the serpent. Mankind blames one another. We live in a world full of victims, don't we? A victim mentality. And then our view of other people That outward arrow is shattered. Shattered. And the final relationship that is shattered is our relationship with God's creation. Remember we talked about how we are called to have duty 
over his creation to be good stewards. We do that by filling, subduing, and ruling over his creation. Suddenly, that relationship gets shattered too, and it gets a lot more difficult. That's the final blank. Difficult. Because we see the curse take place in verses 14 through 19 here in chapter 3. In verse 16, suddenly filling the earth gets more difficult because, well, women are now subjected to labor pains during childbirth. Now, I'm sorry, I might disappoint you with this, but I'm not going to go through a tutorial today about childbirth. It's not going to happen. But let me just say this, fellas, praise Jesus, we don't have to go through this because I don't think we could handle it, you know what I mean? Yeah, okay, I heard an amen out there. And suddenly, uh, also along with that curse, that downward arrow is shattered because now from the ground we find thorns and thistles. It's a lot more laborious to try to produce fruit, food from it. Any farmers out there, anybody has ever worked on a farm, you know what I'm talking about. You've got to spray, you've got to tend to the weeds. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 8.22. He says, all creation has now been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. From this point on, Adam and Eve, at the end of chapter 3, are cast out of the Garden of Eden. Their sin, they are removed from the presence of God. He can't be in the presence of sin. Removed from his perfect protection. They no longer could eat from the tree of life. God wasn't making a hypothetical statement when he said, if you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, death will surely come, and it did. Since that time, all organic living things, plants, animals, our physical bodies are subjected to decay, destruction, and death. The Bible says in Romans 5.12, Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. Shattered. The world's shattered. Shattered image bearers. Shattered relationship with God, ourself, others. And his creation shattered. But praise be to God. It doesn't end in chapter 3. It doesn't end there. Neither does that story about the boy that I hit. Like I said, it went on for a few, several years. I don't know how old I was, probably about junior high age. And finally, I knew that I'd, it was time to confess. I finally told God I was sorry for what I'd done, and I knew I had to talk to that young man and tell him I was sorry too. So we were on the bus together, a bus ride. I think we were going on a field trip, and I knew it was that moment that I needed to talk to him. So I went up to him, and I said, I was so nervous. <laughs> I said, hi, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And his name was Andy. I remember this. I said, I'm sorry. And then he kind of started laughing a little bit because he said, Paul, what I have here, it's a birthmark. I, 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 I can't even explain the weight that was lifted off of my shoulders in that moment. The weight of shame that I've been carrying all those years. I remember it well, even though it was, I was young. It was a long time ago. But I remember it well. It was like I could breathe fresh air again. 
You see, as a result of the fall, we've all been born with a birthmark. His birthmark wasn't a result of his sin, but we've all been born with a birthmark, can't be seen, and the birthmark is sin. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, our images have been marred, and we don't perfectly reflect God's glory because of it. None of us do. But you see, it's there in the middle of the fall, that darkest moment, destruction and death all around. It's there that we see just a little glimmer of hope. Because God in his great mercy and grace, he knew from the beginning that he would have to redeem his broken image bearers. It's there in the middle of Genesis chapter 3. It's there in the middle of the curse in verse 15. We see that yes, there will be, the enemy will strike the heel of God. But he will send somebody that will crush the head of the serpent. And then from the rest of Genesis all the way to Malachi, we're told about the promised one to come. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we're told about the promised one. He's arrived. And he lived the perfect life. He died on the cross. And by the power of God, he rose from the grave. And he won the victory over death, sin, and the enemy. He crushed the head of the enemy. And his name is Jesus. That's the gospel, and he sets men free, and he redeems these broken relationships, the one that's up to God, to one another, to ourselves, and to creation. That's the gospel, and there's no ands or ors about it. The Bible says that there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. It's only through the mighty name of Jesus, and that's it, and that's enough. And the Bible says that he's coming back. Acts through Revelation, we read that he's going to restore all things to himself. But until that time, we got dual citizenship. We live in a world that's broken. And the enemy is real. He's prowling around looking for souls to devour. And he's like a serpent, cunning, crafty. And sometimes he strikes his blows and inflicts some poison by cutting at our heels. So we're going to end today with a song. It's called Come to the Altar. And you see, the difference about where we're at today is this. (laughs) We can punch back. Not on our own strength, but we can crush the head of the serpent, and we do that by denying ourselves and fully surrendering to God, taking up our cross and following Jesus, because he's the one who's gained the victory. And the more we surrender to Jesus, the more we gain victory over the enemy. The more we lose ourselves in his love, the more that we find and experience the goodness of God, because that's how we were created to be. And so during this song, I'm going to invite you, would you all just please stand? All y'all, would you please stand? The first couple lines in the song go like this. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus, God, is calling. Maybe you're here hurting and broken today, and you've been walking around with a bit of a limp (laughs) because the enemy's been biting at your heel somehow. I'd invite you during the song, you can sing along, you can kneel at your seat, you can come to the altar. We've got some elders, pastors, godly men, Wives up here that would 
be a privilege for them to pray with you. Maybe you're here today and, you know, for years you've been stiff-arming God, saying, I've got this. Maybe you bought into another gospel, like I can earn my way to salvation. Maybe you've been in the church for years and you realize today you never had a personal relationship with God's Son, Jesus Christ. There is no other name, no other way. It's only through Jesus. And he's calling you by name from darkness into light because he's the only way to the Father. It's what God's word says. Answer the call today. Come to the altar. Pray with one of us. It's a privilege. Maybe you're here today and the enemy has his fangs in your heel and you're in some form of bondage. You've been limping around. Crush the head of the serpent. Come and repent. Come to the altar. Pray with somebody about it. Maybe there's been a heel strike and something unexpected has happened in your life and it's really sent you in a downward spiral. Come to the altar and pray. Maybe you're here today and you know, you've been in a dark place. Maybe you've been dealing with suicidal thoughts. I want to say something to you. You're not alone. You're not. And don't listen to the voice of the enemy. Because God loves you and he's not ashamed of you. Come to the altar and pray. You know, praise the Lord, I don't run around punching people in the face anymore. But I still struggle seeing other people as image bearers of our God. And I've done other things in my mind to shatter the image of other people. Maybe you're here today and you need some healing in a relationship because you're not viewing somebody as an image bearer. Come to the altar to pray. We have a divine moment right now in this week, in this place, to come to the altar and pray. Don't run and hide in the trees. If God's calling you, don't be afraid. Come to the altar.
this week. It's in your worship guide there at the bottom. Spend some time in God's Word, if you would. Prepare for next week's message by reading Colossians 1. You know, read about a Redeemer. His name is Jesus. It's good. And also, next week, we'll be taking communion together. We'll be doing that in the first half of the service. So take this week to prepare your hearts for that. Maybe there's some relationships that you need to follow up on do some fixing, do some repenting, asking for forgiveness. Do that this week as well. And as you leave this place, remember true freedom, true freedom, true life, victory is only found in the presence of Jesus. Walk with the King. Love you guys. And by the way, the altar's still open. If you could use prayer for anything, we'll stay up here. Love to pray with you. Love you guys. Have a good week.